the New Testament epistles basically are after the Gospels in the book of Acts. Everything in between that and the book of Revelation is considered an epistle. Epistelas means sent upon, and I remind you, epistelas, just in a simple sense, it's a letter. We're reading people's mail. Uh, of that, it breaks down into three categories. The first nine of them, and, there are, and it's nice to know that they're at least orderly in that, the first nine are to specific locations. So for a lack of a better term, we could call them locational. That's Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and First and Second Thessalonians. All of them are to a specific location. The next four are personal. That is, the two Timothys, the Titus, and Philemon are personal letters. Now, people often break down the two Timothys and Titus into what they would call pastoral letters, sending them to them as pastors. And, that, and, and, and I, I understand why that's the case, and I've even used that term, but I have to be honest. Timothy is sent, and Titus is sent, to help fix a church. Uh, it's a weird place to be as a pastor who is, in essence, dedicating himself to that particular place. So um, as much as I could say that they are clearly pastoral letters, I would say they're definitely ministry letters in that sense. So they're, but they're personal, including Philemon, who in the simplest sense is, you had a slave, he followed me home, can I keep him? By the way, let me remind you, you got saved through this ministry. So that's kind of all of Philemon. It's one chapter long. So locational, first nine, personal, the next four, and then the last eight are general. And, and only in general in the sense that they don't have a specific location. They may have several locations, and we see that, for instance, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so really, in, because of that, you kind of, other than Hebrews, they're kind of named after the writer. That's James, that's the Peters, that's the Johns, that's Jude. Those are all, in essence, attributed to the writer because it doesn't have a specific location, so you can't call it that, and it doesn't have a specific recipient, although, it, actually, you can almost say that in regards to the, the small John letters, uh, but in the simplest sense, they're considered general. So, the first nine are locational, the next four are, are personal, and then the last eight are general. We now enter that second section, the area of the personal letters, and they are very personal in that sense. Now, these are written, this one and the next one are written to Timothy. Timothy, by the way, of all the people written in the New Testament, if you will, uh, especially in, from Acts and beyond, it would be hard to find a supporting role that gets more press than this guy. I mean, we certainly see major characters like Peter or Paul, but when you think of sort of best supporting actor, best sidekick, if you will, Timothy is, in essence, sort of the Robin to Paul's Batman. It's kind of the idea. Uh, and Timothy is mentioned, by the way, 24 times by name in the New Testament. His name, Timotheos, means precious, like precious. <coughs> uh, and so a little bit of background in the book of Acts. Paul had gone through the middle of uh, Turkey on his uh, first mission trip. Had gone through Cyprus and then gone up into the middle of Turkey. And when he went up through there, he got stoned to death, or at least stoned nearly to death, uh, when he was in the Laodicean, I'm sorry, in the Laconian region. As he's there and that happens, a bunch of disciples, we read, stand around him and he gets back up. Now, whether he died and was and resurrected, or whether he was just nearly dead and got back up, it, the language doesn't make clear on either, so you can lean on either side of that. Paul, though, will refer later in 2 Corinthians to a time that completely correlates with that moment when it says that he knows a man that saw the seventh heaven. 
and saw things too beautiful to mention, in essence. Too magnificent to put down in words. And then he says, you know, whether he's in the spirit or spirit, I don't know, this particular guy, but then the next thing he says is, but so that I would be kept humble by, the, by these massive revelations and these visions, God put a thorn in my side. So it's kind of easy to think he's speaking of himself, and like Elmo does in third person. Now, I just wanted, the reason I'm even giving you that is on the first trip, this guy was beat to death in this region. And that region, by the way, is the area of Lystra and Derby. Why is that important? Because the second time Paul goes through that area, he meets this kid, Timothy, or at least he actually wants to take Timothy with him. Now, Paul's gone through your region. He was stoned, dragged out of the city, and he comes back to your area, and he wants to take you with him on his traveling ministry. Do you go? That's kind of, I mean, the only, that's why I'm giving you that background. It's like Timothy kind of knows right from the beginning, jumping into this thing is going to be challenging. That ministry is not all going to, it's not always going to be easy, but it's always going to be amazing. And there will be challenges, and there will be opposition. And, and, and by the way, Paul's greatest opposition was always religious people. That's kind of important to note. It wasn't like Paul's greatest opposition were the atheists. Uh, the atheists, I mean, by the way, it was really kind of hard to find an atheist because people usually just kind of believe whatever they wanted to believe, and that was often idols and false gods and so forth. But most of those people, by the way, unless their business was really suffering because of the ministry, <clears throat> usually the primary interrogators and persecutors of Paul were religious like the Jewish people. They weren't exclusively Jewish, but they were often and predominantly Jewish. So he, so he picks up this kid. Now, on the first trip, Paul had actually been the sidekick. Uh, Barnabas was, for the most part, the major guy. Until, actually, they leave Cyprus. When he actually winds up in Turkey, by that point, Paul gets front billing. But in essence, it was originally Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas's cousin named John Mark. So in essence, there was a leader, there was an apprentice, and an assistant. Uh, and ultimately, that starts to swap around after... Cyprus, and John Mark leaves. So on the second trip around, Paul takes a guy named Silas, and Paul is the leader. Silas, in essence, is his assistant, but they need an apprentice, some guy that they're pulling in, and this is the guy they choose. Uh, more, most people, conservative scholars, believe the guy was a teenager when they pulled him in, maybe as young as 13 or 14. That's a crazy thought. Imagine how ill-equipped you feel for the ministry and imagine a guy like that saying, hey, you've already seen how rough it can be in the ministry. Do you, do you want to do it? Do you say yes? And this is, and by the way, if you think that's hard enough, look at Acts 16, verse 1. It says this, he came to Derby and Lystra, <clears throat> and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. What we're going to learn is, Timothy had given his life through Paul's ministry, given his life to Jesus through Paul's ministry, because he calls him a true son in the faith. Well, when did he do that? It had to be the time before where Paul was stoned and left for dead, which means that Timothy was one of the people who gave his life to Christ at the time when Paul was getting beat up. And I wonder if he was one of the guys that stood around Paul when he was actually raised and got back up and went back into the city because it says the disciples did that. Kind of a crazy thought. So listen to this. It says, And behold, a certain disciple was there named Precious, Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed but his father was Greek. So, mom was Jewish, dad was Greek. By the way, to this day, he could still claim Jewish heritage because that's through the mom. The term that's used in the book of Leviticus chapter 12 is opens the womb. 
you know, no matter how much the father has to contribute, you're never going to open the womb through dad. So to this day, you prove you're Jewish through mom. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. So he took him and circumcised him because the Jews that were in the region for the all knew his father was Greek. So let's just play this out for a second. I remind you, this is the apprentice. So let's just play it out with the people we have here in the room for a moment like this. Uh, among the people we have in the room. So here I am with Dan. Dan and I have been planning a church. We've been going around planning churches. And we go into a place. I get beat up left for dead. Notice I play the role of Paul here. Because I don't mind getting beat up in that sense. Well, actually I do mind. But <clears throat> and somewhere in all of that, Hugo gives his life to Christ in that ministry. We come back and we say, we'd really like you to come with us. Hugo knows that the cost is going to be at least sacrificial, and it comes. It starts that way. And they're like, well, what's it going to take for, for me to come with you? And Daniel goes, swing this. you got to know a guy serious if this is what it takes to get the guy on the mission field. And again, what if he really is 14 years old? And it's one thing when the guy's 75 and that kind of thing happens. And again, I don't want to get gross, but 14, that's anyways. From the next four chapters, Timothy becomes by far his most trusted companion that he sends to go check up on churches, to go minister. He'll leave him and Silas up in Thessalonica when he flees for his life. He'll call them back in. And what we're going to see is Timothy really becomes Paul's right-hand man. And, and I really think that part of that was that he was born in trouble. I mean, here's the danger. If you were, and I, I, this is going to sound dangerous, if you were born in a church that was super comfortable and everything was running right and everything was just, in, other, in essence, you were born rich, then when you start to face the challenges, you start to wonder what went wrong. And with that, then, you, it's amazing how many people are born in that comfortable setting. Then challenges come, and they just want to bail because they're like, well, I didn't know that this was part of the program. But when you were born and you were cutting your teeth on challenge, and you know that that's what the ministry is about, and you still choose it anyways. Well, actually, I say God chooses you in it. But you still decide, okay, I'm going to do this. You become the kind of guys that become superheroes of faith. Because you know when the challenge happens, you're like, well, that's all part of the thing, you know? I mean, it's like, you know, as a coach, we'd have these guys that we'd be bringing that were naturally talented. We had this guy, his surname was Romo, and he was so gifted naturally at basketball. I mean, the guy just, you know those kind of guys that almost looks like a dancer, super fluid when they move and that kind of thing? And because he was so naturally gifted at it, when he actually had to try to improve, he didn't know how. Because he had always been just good enough the way he was. But the moment you're like, no, this is about everybody improving, you included, that became a real hurdle for him. And in that same way, if you're in that place where everything's kind of running smoothly and basically all you have to do is plug yourself into the machine and they do all the work for you and basically here's all your, here's all your materials, here's, here's what you're teaching and here's what you're going to do and all of that. Hey, I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm saying it really doesn't prepare you for frontline ministry. Because then when you're actually there and watching people get saved, and you're like, well, now what do we do with these people? Because we don't have the program to put it in. We have to invent it. You can draw from those sources, and you, get, you find yourself missing that structure instead of actually getting on your face and doing the one thing we're required to do, which is actually 
ask the Lord personally, what in the world are we supposed to do with these people? And there becomes the crazy part where we can adopt kooky things because we're familiar with them, and we can live, we can, in essence, we can coast off of what we've known, or we can watch God do something fresh if we actually get on our face and watch him do it. So what do we know about Timothy? He knew there was sacrifice from the get-go. When he goes with Paul, he's trusted. For, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.9 tells us that it says, as he speaks to the Corinthians, he says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among us, by us, I'm sorry, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy. In other words, he goes, you know who preached the gospel in Corinth? wasn't just Paul. It was Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy. In other words, by the time he gets to Corinth, and by the way, Paul, when he first picks up Timothy, the next thing that happens is that, remember that part where Paul wants to go up into, uh, into uh, Istanbul and the Holy Spirit doesn't let him? And he wants to go to Ephesus and the Holy Spirit doesn't let him? That's the first thing that happens after Timothy gets picked up. Could you imagine? You get scooped up by Paul. You know, the last time he got stoned to death or nearly to death when he was in your town, he's picked you up. He's circumcised you. Have a nice day with that. And then he's like, well, we're going to go here. Uh, actually, we're not going to go here. But we're going to go here. And you can imagine him going, what did I sign up for? Oh, my goodness. How could this be? This is, this is the guy that's going to change the world? I signed up for this. How could this guy have such an amazing calling on his life? And he doesn't even know what in the world he's doing. Then they wind up in Troas. And when they wind up in Troas, he gets a vision in the middle of the night. And then it's just immediately they go. So imagine in the middle of the night, then you get woken up and saying, oh, actually, this is where we're going now. And you're like, well, why couldn't the Lord have told you in the afternoon? And it's like that constant state of being ready and recognize. I, I think one of the beautiful things is that Timothy, getting pulled from the beginning, recognized that it was going to be sacrifice. It was going to be a challenge, but it was worth it. And you know how Timothy knew it was worth it? He got saved through it. Even in the horrible experiences that were around him, he still got saved in it. Even when the guy that was he was, in essence, was led to Christ by, still got, in essence, thrown to the rails, he got saved through all of that. And because of that, he knew it was worth it. Because if he could get saved through that, and that was the last thing on his mind, if you will, even though he came from great breeding, we'll see that. He's got to know the ministry is worth it. So then he jumps in and he's realizing, wow, this isn't going to be about the guy. Because the guy keeps wanting to do stuff, and the Holy Spirit's saying, no. It's going to have to be about the Lord. And I think that's a really healthy place. Those are, these are bricks being laid just above the foundation of this ministry for this kid. Now, he is of all of Paul's team, he is the most sent to other places. 1 Corinthians 4.17, for this reason I send Timothy to you. Philippians 2.9, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. 1 Thessalonians 3.2, then we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God. And that's three different churches right there that Paul sent Timothy. And imagine this kid, by the time, and by the way, Timothy would be in his late teens by the time he sent him the first time around. So imagine looking and going, I mean, Daniel and I are looking, we're like, okay, it's time to send Hugo. Hugo, okay, you're 18 now. He may have, in essence, been a Christian for about four or five years. And then he looks at me and goes, all right, I need you to go to a church that's turned into a circus and rebuke a bunch of people four times your age. Who wants to sign up for that job? I mean, that's a crazy thought. 
Paul had that much faith in Timothy. And you know, by the time we get to 2 Timothy, the one thing that becomes evident, Timothy is freaking out. He's freaking out. And Paul's like, stir up the gift that's in you, man. In other words, get it going. And you could just see Timothy going, I'm not too sure. if I'm, it, it, It's not whether it's worth it. So I'm not too sure I'm cut out for this. And he goes, don't you remember the... Your, your mother and your grandmother and how they invested in you. Don't you remember the prophecies people made about you? Don't you remember that how we laid hands on you and we totally acknowledged that this was a God's calling on your life? And by the way, God has not given you the spirit of fear. He's giving you the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So why are you freaking out, Timothy? Let's get on it. But let's face it, great men throughout all Scripture freak out. Not just Gideon, who was basically the scaredy cat of Scripture. But people like Joshua, who was the soldier. But God doesn't disqualify a guy because he's scared. But I just kind of get the fact that Paul didn't seem that kind of guy. Now, there are times where he would say in 2 Corinthians, he despaired even of life. He said, actually, they. He wasn't the only one who did. In other words, he's like, I think this is going to kill us now. And yet it didn't. And imagine he woke up from that and gone... I'm alive! We're alive! Well, he's also included in the greetings of Romans, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Oh, so by the way, Timothy says hi. And in the book of Hebrews, where people want to argue who wrote it, it says this at the end of it, know that our brother Timothy has been set free. So, that, you know, if he was set free, what had to happen to him before that? He was captured. He was in prison. Paul was not the only one who spent time. Paul was not the only one who did time for Christ. Apparently, Timothy did too. Now, in the Timothy letters, we learned this, at least a little bit, about Timothy. He calls him a true son in the faith. Now, if you would call him a son, you'd expect to assume that he was led to Christ through the ministry there. It says this in 118, This charge I commit to you, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, by them you may wage the good warfare. Notice Paul doesn't cut punches when it comes to telling you this is warfare. Though you are totally victorious, and though you've given everything to be victorious in the fight, it's still a fight, Timothy. In 4.14 he'll say, Don't neglect the gift that is in you, which is given to you by prophecy in the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Don't you remember when the elders laid hands on you and they prophesied over you? That wasn't just talk. Man, they were serious. It says in, in the next verse, Then meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. And I love this. Don't miss this. Timothy's still young when Paul's writing this. He's just, by the way, not as young. I mean, if we kind of do the math on this, I mean, I have to kind of work this out. Timothy's in his late 20s, early 30s at this point. I love the fact that he's like, and he'll say, don't let people look down on you because you're young. And he's late 20s, early 30s at that point. So look at that. Think about you guys as we think of that. And the reason I say that is, is that he says the issue is not about being a paradigm of perfection. It is actually being an example of progress. There's the quote part. Because what people are really looking at is not how to imitate a person who's perfect, but rather how to grow with a person who's growing. That's the exciting thing. And by the way, Paul was too. Now, it says this, by the way, when Paul speaks in 2 Timothy, to give you a little bit, he says that he greatly desired to see him. He says in 1.5, when he called to remembrance the genuine faith that is in him, 
which dwelt first in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice. I remind you, that was the Jewish side of the family. And I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I laid hands on you, Timothy. You saw those gifts happen. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. It says in 2 Timothy 3.14, You must continue in the things that you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was raised on Scripture. By the way, so was Paul. The difference, and they were both in essence raised with a Jewish mindset on Scripture. Kind of a fun thought. By the way, in this room, Daniel's the only one who qualifies among us men in this room. Have you thought that through? I wasn't raised on Scripture. I'm sure Hugo wasn't raised on Scripture. And yet on the other side of that, he says, look at the stock you came from. Now, the purpose, he says in two basic verses. In 1.3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So where is Timothy when Paul is writing this? He's in Ephesus. By the way, we're going to find the problem is that they're, they're veering from the truth. The very thing Paul warned when he was on Miletus warning the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. When he writes to the Ephesians, the first time, he writes personally to the Ephesians, then he writes to Timothy, who we sent to the Ephesians, and then Jesus will write to the Ephesians, if you think about it, in the book of Revelation. He also says this, then, in chapter 3, verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul says this, I sent you and said, stay in Ephesus, teach them to teach no other doctrine, because they're teaching all kinds of wacky things. Correct them on this, tell them they need to teach this, and he goes, look, I'm planning on coming there myself, but no matter how I'm delayed, I'm writing this now so you know how people are supposed to behave in church. Because the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth. As a matter of fact, Three different times, the key phrase, this is a trustworthy saying, will be said. It will also be said in 2 Timothy 2.11, by the way. Important to note that. And I kind of led to believe that Paul is, in essence, challenging these, quote-unquote, false teachers. Well, they are false teachers in that sense. And I think what's happening is the false teachers, I'm, I'm reading into it, are saying, this is a faithful saying, or this is a trustworthy saying. So Paul goes, no, 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 no. This is a trustworthy saying. So he's correcting them on that. Now, uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to see that throughout this book. 1-3, uh, verse actually 1-4, that they've been given to fables and endless genealogies. Uh, in chapter, verse 4, deceiving spirit, or 4-1, I'm sorry, deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods. Uh, chapter 4, verse 7, profane and old wives' fables. 6, 4, dispute and arguments over words. There are debates happening in the church over words, and then useless wranglings, he uses in the next verse. Now, with that in mind, he'll say that there is uh, profane and idle babblings, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So these people are setting themselves as the experts, and he goes, I'm sending you in, to, to say this is what real truth looks like. 
Now, in the simplest sense, let me put it this way, and here's our acronym, and I challenge you to write this down just to kind of get an idea here. There are six chapters, and in the six chapters, there is, um, each one of them kind of has a basic, how do I view this kind of thing. And I use the acronym CALLER. Like, Timothy is the called. Paul is the caller, although the Lord's the one who's called him into the ministry. If you took the acronym C-A-L-L-E-R, that will help you remember every chapter in 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, how do I view the commandments? And what you find is, is that they're, they're actually, these false teachers are teaching they're flipping this whole issue. They're removing grace and saying that the law is the thing, like Galatians. So the first chapter, how do I view the commandments? The second chapter, how do I view authority? There's our A, authority. The third chapter, how do I view leadership? The fourth chapter, how do I handle lies? The fifth chapter, how do I view eldership? And that, by the way, will be elders in the church and widows as well will be in that chapter. And then finally, chapter 6, how do I view riches? So, commandments, authority, leadership, lies, eldership, and riches. No, close your eyes. I'm not going to touch you. Close your eyes. What's the C stand for? Commandments. Commandments. Beautiful. What is the A? Authority. Authority. What's the first L? Leadership. Leadership. What's the second L? Lies. What's the, what's the E? Elders. Eldership. And what's the R? Riches. Riches. Okay, one more time. What's the C? Commandments. What's the A? Authority. What's the L? First L? Leadership. Second L? What's the uh, what's the E? And what's the R? Riches. Riches. Look at that. You've actually nailed the book. Now let's take a look at it, shall we? Let's see. Is there anything else that I needed to say? Probably not. Right. I've already said. I've already said enough. Okay. Uh, let's do this. Can we just take a five-minute break? I think it's wise to take a five-minute break. Go to the bathroom, get a drink or whatever, because then we'll go straight through the book. And there are some very, very key issues in this. And I want to make sure that we get them right. So I want us to have at least a fresh brain on that. So let's end with this, and then we'll take our quick break, okay? Caller, chapter 1 is, how do I view? Commandments. Commandments. Chapter 2, how do I view? Authority. Authority. Chapter 3, how do I view? Leadership. Leadership. Chapter 4, how do I deal with? Lies. Lies. Chapter 5, how do I view? Eldership. Eldership. Chapter 6, how do I view? Riches. Riches. Nailed it. Okay, Lord, imprint that in our hearts as it should be and prepare us now to go through your entire book. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, quick five minutes and we'll jump in. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Savior. That'll be a real fundamental point in this. Apparently one of the things that we're being taught, and it would make sense among the Judaizers, is that God hand-selects some for heaven and others he just basically preordained for hell. We're going to see that Paul has a very differing view on that in this, in this book. 
by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they may teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables or endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment, this is going to be the way that Paul is going to address things throughout this book. He's going to go, this is really the purpose behind this thing. In other words, people are misusing this. This is what it's really intended for. had a great talk with a gal last night who was like, she's reading through Leviticus and going, I'm trying to see the purpose behind the law. Well, here it is. The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, they desire to be teachers of the law, but they understand neither what they say nor the things in which they affirm. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine... According to the, it tells us, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Now, consider this. What he's saying is, the law does not make you right, but the law shows you you're not. So if you're already righteous with God, the law can be, still be used, in essence, to recognize what still needs to be changed. But it is not the thing that makes you right. It's the thing that shows you that you need to get right. Jesus Christ is the thing that makes you right. The same way that a mirror doesn't, make, doesn't fix your blemishes, it just shows them. A mirror is extremely helpful, especially if you're kind of the puts on makeup. You know, that's obviously at least three people I'm looking at. Um, but uh, I'll let you figure that one out. Right. But it's obviously, it's like you, people, you know, you can sit next to somebody on a bus and they can flip out their little thing and they start doing their makeup, they need a mirror. Because otherwise, they could actually look very much like one of those psychotic clowns from something. And the whole point of it is, is going, look at, people are using the law incorrectly here. But this is what it really should be. So what does the law do for us as the righteous? It actually says this. Notice that the purpose of the law, and, and I love this actually, it says that the purpose of the law is, is not, you know, first of all, for the insubordinate and all of these lawbreakers, it shows them they're not right. But it tells us that, and I want to make sure that I'm saying it the way that it is in this. But to do, to do, it says that we know that the law is not made for an unrighteous, I'm sorry, for a righteous person, but an unrighteous person. But for us, that the purpose of the commandment is love. When we read the law and we read the commandment, it challenges us to love. From a pure heart, we have a clear conscience now because we recognize that Jesus has washed us clean from those things. And because we have a sincere faith, we trust God in this thing. So I can read the law and I can still say, wow, my life doesn't correlate with that. Jesus, change it. I don't say, oh, this is how I get right with God. No. I thank God. I thank Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Christ Jesus, our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice the point is that how Paul got right was through the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he comes up with our first, this is a faithful saying. 
worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am. Arche is the word in the Greek. Primary, the chief, or the first. In other words, I was the sinner of sinners. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, so that in me, first, Christ might show all long-suffering. Notice it doesn't say that Christ might just show all, long, show all grace. Showing all long-suffering or patience means that Jesus had to wait for Paul. But he goes, still, then in me, the worst of sinners, the first, or at first, Christ might display his unlimited patience or long-suffering as an example for those who would believe on and receive eternal life. In other words, he says, God saves me so you couldn't say he wouldn't save you. And he was long-suffering. He waited and waited, though I was an insolent and horrible man. But what made, in other words, if me, the worst of all sinners, could be made right through faith in Jesus Christ by his grace, how in the world could the law make anyone right? Well, with that in mind, so I charge this to you, I commit this to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience on which some, having rejected, concerning the faith of suffered shipwreck. And he mentions two of them here, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Imagine that. In the first chapter, there were those who were misusing the commandments to say this is the means to get right. Of which, by the way, were these guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. By the way, Paul actually kicked them out of the church and handed them over to Satan. By the way, he'll actually speak in 2 Timothy, I believe it's 1.5, about two other guys, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who, by the way, on their own turned away from Paul. Uh, and then they were, we're going to find that there are other people that are in these challenges, and we're going to see Alexander being one of those. Uh, so anyway, so there's, there's the point. Galatians 3.24, I remind you, says that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. It's the mirror that shows us we're not right. It's faith through Jesus Christ that makes us right. Now, therefore, and there are two beautiful acronyms, and they'll be easy to remember, the ministry of spit and the ministry red. So red spit ministry, that's what we'll, how's that for a great name? We're the red spit ministry. Second chapter, first chapter again was how I view what? Commandments. And what are they? They are the tool to show me that Jesus Christ needs to save me. Second chapter, how I view authority. Now, therefore, in light that that's what the commandments do, I exert first that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in, what's the word there? Authority. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, don't miss this. The spit, supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Now, Paul says, this is what I challenge you. This is what I exhort you. In other words, I'm commanding this of you guys. If you're going to be a Christian, this is how you look at kings and all who are in authority. This is the way a Christian responds to Donald Trump. This is the way a Christian responds to Theresa May. Now, we could say that about Jeremy Corbyn, but I don't know if he's in authority yet. Um, the point of it is, is that we can blog and talk about how horrible they are as Christians, and we can, we can post rallies and do all of these other things, and we can carry our picket signs and create the things and buy everything that the media says. But who is leading prayer study, or who is leading prayer meetings over these people? Because what Christians are supposed to be doing is actually four things, according to this. What was the S? Does anyone remember? 
Supplications. supplications. You know what suppli- you know what word we get from supplications? Supply. So what do you think we're praying when we're praying supplication? Supply them. God, give them what they need to do this right. What's the P? Prayers. We throw ourselves to the good will of God and we pray the same for others. What is what's the I? Intercession. Intercession. No, wait a minute. That means we're praying over someone. Oh God, reach this person's heart. What's the T? Thanksgiving. Christians pray Thanksgiving over all people in authority. Show me a group of Christians that actually pray Thanksgiving over Donald Trump. Show me Christians who gather together and pray Thanksgiving over Theresa May. Now look at that doesn't mean that these people are perfect. But I want to remind you, Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus. This is not a place that's godly at any means. The leaders that were there weren't claiming to be Christian, and they were, for the most part, anti-Christian. Who was, in essence, the person in charge while Paul is writing this? Who was the emperor during the time Paul is writing this? Do you know? Nero. I guarantee you, Trump is not Nero. I guarantee I mean, and it really angers me when they try to make him Adolf Hitler. Because the difference is radical. And, you know, look, he's a human being, and he's made mistakes. There's no doubt. And I'm not a supporter of anyone, but I should be a prayer for them. And the only reason I say that is, is that if he could tell us that we should be praying these things for people when he's writing it, when Nero's in charge, how in the world could we think that our world's worse? Because you want to see what real Christians are supposed to do. That doesn't mean we don't get involved politically. But what it does mean is that we as Christians, we get together and we pray for these people. And it's like, I really believe that, that that's the thing that's missing in regards to the politics. We're much quicker to be, to blab our mouths, and we're not, I mean, it's like our mouths are so active and our knees are so unused. And he says, this is what I want you to do for every person in authority. I don't care if that person's a king. And let's face it, that actually means more to us than it would in America, because we don't have kings, we have presidents. But... Sooner or later, our dear, our dear Queen Mum will go and stand before the Lord, and she's going to hand that over to someone else, who's more than likely it's going to be a king. And, you know, unless something really strange happens, you know. And the reason I say that is, is that we can look at this, and it says, for kings, that's going to be them. And all who are in authority, all who are in authority, that includes the person in the council, that includes the person that's our prime minister. That includes our representatives. And he goes, this is how a Christian is supposed to look at authority. Now, why do you think Paul even has to tell people this? Because the community, that's the Christian community in Ephesus, was clearly not doing this. And he goes, look, can I challenge you on this? The word exhort. Can I challenge you on this? This is how we handle leadership. You know how we handle it? On our knees. And by the way, the moment you're on your knees, God could tell you to do something, but you know it's you, that's God telling you and not your emotions. Not a culture that goes, this is what we need to do, or a media that's dictating your response. God's got to be the one to tell you. That's real spit ministry. Drop the mic. All right. For this is good, and by the way, notice verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable. What's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior? That we pray. We pray spit. S is? Supplications. P is? Prayers. prayers. I is? Intercession. T is? 
And, God, and you notice this, if you're doing that, God's going to go, that's what I'm looking for. Notice it says in verse 4, who desires how many men to be saved? All men. And all, by the way, means all. He desires all men. Not, not just all tribes or all races. Because the point was, a king you're praying for. A leader you're praying for. It isn't about races. Does that make sense? Because some will say what this really means is God desires whites and black people to get saved. He desires the Asians and the, you know. It's like, but that's the, the context is, I want you praying for that king. You know why? Because if God desires all men to come to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that includes him. That includes Nero. That includes Trump. That includes Theresa May. That includes our queen. That includes the council member. That includes anybody that's in charge. That's your boss where you work. He's an authority. And he says, I mean, that's the crazy person in charge of the stalls. That you're like, oh my goodness, really? You know, and the reason I say that is he goes, look at the reason I want you praying is because what God really wants is not for you to be known for how you pick it. Not for how you're known about what you stand against first and foremost. But what you stand for first and most foremost is that God really wants people saved. That's what he wants, more than anything. It's like more, dare I say, more than the abortion issue, though he doesn't want babies killed. More than the issue of sexual purity, though he clearly wants that. What he wants more than anything is people saved. That's what he wants more than anything. And what you're doing isn't seeing people get saved. Oh, you're gathering people together, but he wants us praying for these people because he wants them saved and he wants us on our knees about it. And he desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You know why? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? According to verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. Don't miss that. I've had people tell me, but if Jesus died for people who won't say yes to him, his blood will be wasted. I'd say he gave himself as a ransom for all. And all means all. He paid the price for everyone, but not everyone's going to let him take the bill. To be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. In the truth, I'm, speaking the, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore... That the men pray everywhere. Guess who seems to be lacking the most in prayers? The men. If we put together a prayer meeting, now if you've ever been, have any of you ever been to a church prayer meeting before? How prominent are the men there? I've been to, I mean, I, I can tell you that if I were a single 18 year old boy, a prayer meeting would be a great place to, and there are going to be some people in our church that. Actually, they're not here. It's probably better for this moment. But it's like, you, because you find praying women. You find a bunch of women together. And he goes, you know, Paul's like, where am I praying men at? Where are men that are willing to get together in supplication, prayer, and intercession, and thanksgiving? Where are those guys at? They're praying for authority. Where are those guys at? And he goes, you know what? I desire that men pray everywhere. In other words, wouldn't it be great if Christian men were known for praying? Lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. In like, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. In propriety of not women, in like manner. Okay, now don't miss this. What makes men beautiful? Praying. When they are men of prayer. That makes them men of virtue. Men of prayer. What makes women beautiful? 
or of virtue. None uh, braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Not that they couldn't wear something that's nice. Not that they couldn't do their hair. This isn't what makes them beautiful. But rather, what is proper for women confessing godliness and good works. In other words, doing things that are bl a blessing. And then we get these fun verses. Oh, this is our first of a couple really fun places to dive into because people love these verses. It says, Let a woman learn in silence. With all submission, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first and Eve, and, Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression, and that if that wasn't hard enough to swallow, my favorite verse in all this, nevertheless shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Oh boy. Well, I have to address this, huh? Verse 11. Let a woman learn an esuchia, is the word in the Greek. Esuchia, a, is like a negative that, it literally means a, well, a desistance from all bustle or language, stillness and quiet. In other words, ceasing from commotion, be that verbal or otherwise, with all submission, upatase, or in this case, Upatago. It means to choose to rank yourself underneath. Now, what seems clear in the church in Ephesus that Timothy sent to is it is a church where people are competing over who gets prominence. And because of that, he's like, look at, let's just remember chapter 2, the focus is on how we view what? Authority. There's our problem. First of all, Here's how you view secular authority. You pray for them. You should pray. Why should we pray for them? Because God wants them saved. saved. He goes, no, but what about in the church? How do we pray there? Or how do, we, how do we view authority there? He goes, it really is, there's a set order. Now, we need to recognize there is no authority God gives without responsibility. And there's no responsibility that God gives without authority. They are in equilibrium. And that is necessary. But God has specific roles. When we talk about the calling, it's amazing how many times people want to put calling as safe. You know, it's like, oh, you know, well, these people are called, but these people aren't called, and these people are just going to go to hell. I challenge you to, to look at the times where we see God talk about his calling and how that pertains to a specific ministry. I didn't choose to become a pastor. God made me that. Now, I made a choice of whether I wanted to go kicking and screaming or enjoy the ride, but that was God's choosing. That was God's choosing. Praise the Lord, by the way. I'm actually quite thankful for that. But what if God actually called me to do something else? What if God called me basically to be a guy that just cleans the streets and shares Jesus with anybody that I meet? I could go, well, I want to be something more prominent. But in the end of it all, God has a right to put me where he wants because I am choosing to submit. I am ranking myself under him. He knows what he's talking about. And he says, that's where I want you. I want you right there. And he has that in the church. And in the church, there are, he says, look, at this is the way it is. In the church, he says, there are particular people that God puts in positions of responsibility and authority, and there are other people that he puts in a different position, but they are all just as fundamentally as important as another. Here's the problem. Viewing it from the world, people that are in front of other people are the important ones. But if you view the human body... A lot of things that people don't see are actually the most important. 
If your nose stopped working, I guarantee you, it would be troublesome, but it's nothing compared to your colon. I'm like, can I just be honest? Both stink, so I'm going to put it in there, but it's like, both smell. But the point is, it's like, this is something people see. And in my case, a lot of people can see it at the same time. But there are internal things, let's face it, if they don't work, they're just as important, if not more important. Because Jesus relates our, our church, the church of Christ, to his body, not stars. And the problem is, we keep viewing, remember how this is how I view authority, how I view the commandments. Well, we keep viewing authority as if somehow authority means importance. But authority doesn't mean importance. It means importance in the role you're put in, but it doesn't mean importance that you're more important than another human being. The problem we have with that is we've adopted the world's view on that into the church. So if a guy stands in front of 3,000 people, he must be a really important person because look at how God's using him fantastically. But if there's a gal that's on her knees just praying, she's not as important. The issue is not whether you get applause from man. The issue is, are you willing to submit to God's placement of you? If he's the coach and he says, this is the position you play, and you're like, I don't like goalie, he knows better than you do. He made you, and he made you for that role. So when Paul takes that, and I imagine this couldn't be easy for Paul to say, because one of the places that were predominantly feminine in regards to the culture was Ephesus, because Ephesus, I remind you in the center of it, had the temple of Diana. The whole thing was built around a goddess. And he looks and he goes, listen, in the church, it is not to look like the world. In the world, women have positions of authority, and that's one thing. And with that, you know, it's, it's not about, and again, it's not about who, in the world, that may mean that they think they're more important, or other people think they're more important. He goes, but this is supposed to be a family, and a family has a set place and an order for every person in their role. Now, you can try to kick against that, and you can bend and torture what the scripture says. And I find it interesting that Peter said, by the way, in 2 Peter 3.16, uh, that there are people who twist Paul's words to their own condemnation. He goes, hey, Paul says some stuff. He says, that's not only hard to understand, it's kind of hard to swallow. doesn't make it not true. He says, but people twist it. And I realize, as he tells us, we're going to see about the perilous times that come as he goes when we get to 2 Timothy. People are going to actually just say, this is what I want to hear, and now all I need to do is find somebody to tell me it. He calls it itching ears. It's like, scratch my ears, this is what I want. Now, this is what Paul says, and, and by the way, please understand, if I were a woman reading this with the same heart that I have, I can't change anything that it says. It's scripture. It's not about me bending it to what I want. Let's face it, there are a lot of things in scripture I don't want, but I have to submit to it because it's what God says. And he says this, let a woman learn in silence. That does not mean a woman can't ever speak. Because it tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.5, he talks about a woman who prophesies with her head uncovered, and he never condemns the woman for prophesying. But he says when it comes to a situation like this in a church setting, and by the way, it never said there that she had to do that in a church setting. But it says here that in regards to a church service, let a woman learn in silence with all submission 
And then he says in verse 12, because, and, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Now it's interesting because the way that people normally bend this, that want to be able to do this, is they take the word or and let it mean and. The word or, by the way, is the word ude. And ude literally means not either. It's a very strong Greek word. Not either means I don't allow this or this. I allow neither. Does that make sense? So some are like, well, I'm teaching, but I'm not having authority over men. And he's like, look at this. Is, he goes, I don't allow a woman to teach. Didasko, the simplest word for teach. Or to have authority. And the word for authority here, by the way, is the word authentejo. And authentejo means to govern, to exercise dominion. But the word autos is at the beginning of it. And autos means me, or personally. In other words, it, in a simple sense, it means for you to exercise authority you've given yourself. It means for you to, be, in essence, usurp another person's authority because you've declared yourself in charge. And he goes, I don't allow women to do this. And let me tell you why. Now, up to this point, and again, you don't have to agree with it inside for it to be true. But I want to remind you, never just believe me, search the scriptures, and that's what I'm doing here to do this. There are, here's the other approach to it, there are four different kinds of standards in the world. There's locational, there's cultural, there's chronological, or there is gnomic. Locational means it is exclusive to a location. For instance, to this day, spitting at any time is considered a grievous act. And if it's within a meter of a person, it is considered assault, even to the point of grievous bodily harm, in Yakutsk. Why is that such a situation in Yakutsk? Because it's one of the coldest places on earth. And if you spat at a person and it landed on their skin, it could freeze and burn their skin. That's, an, that's a grievous assault. Now, it's still considered rude around the world, but it's not considered, in essence, there's places in Africa, by the way, spitting is considered assault with a deadly weapon because so many people have AIDS. But it's a locational thing. You go out of that location, that particular standard may not necessarily apply. Does that make sense? Okay, and then there's cultural. In most Arabic cultures, showing the bottom of your foot is considered the worst insult. You can watch a person fresh out of a place like Afghanistan, and you watch somebody on a train go like this, it will bother them to no end because you've showed them the bottom of your foot. Now, in California, you see the bottom of people's feet all the time. It's like Hawaii. They're like, what's up, bro? Big deal. It's a cultural thing. Seasoning food before you taste it. There are many places in the world, unless you take a sip first, you're insulting the cook. Here, we don't really care. To be honest, if you season the food before you taste it, what that probably means is you weren't raised British. I just dare say that. Using your left hand to shake. In India, the right hand's for what goes in, the left hand's for what goes out. You wipe with one, you feed with the other. So when I get shake someone's, when I went to... Uh, to India for the first time, and I reached out both my hands to shake someone's hand, you can imagine they found that a bit offensive. And I was like, what's the problem? They're like, you wanted to shake their hand with your poop hand. <laughs> I'm like, with my what? Now, here, it's not the same thing. No, 
That's a cultural issue. Let's face it, in Italy, you can hug. And you can hug somebody you just met. At least, they hug me. I don't even go in for the hug. They go in and hug me. I don't know. But in France, if you just go and hug and try to kiss someone you don't really know, that could be a problem. It's a cultural thing. But so there's locational. There is cultural. There is chronological. Did you know, by the way, a hundred years ago, here in this country, a teacher would be fired from their job if, if a woman teacher would be fired from their job if she chewed gum. Chewing gum. Why was that? Because a hundred years ago, a woman that chewed gum looked like that behavior was considered synonymous with a woman of ill repute. And they, as a result of that, they didn't want that to be an example for the children. And they had no idea that MTV was going to be born and not go out the window. Not the chewing gum example. But that's a chronological thing. Now, today, if a girl chews gum, as long as her mouth's shut, I don't think she looks like anything other than a girl chewing gum. That's chronological. And then there is what's called gnomic, G-N-O-M-I-C. And gnomic means it transcends all of those things, and it's a universal standard. How do I know when it's one or the other? I mean, how do I know this isn't a cultural one? Or how do I know this isn't just a locational one? Because that would be an easy answer for that. Well, this is one of the easiest places to be confident it's a gnomic standard. And you know why? Because the example he uses is pulled out from a different culture, from a different time, and from a different location. He says, because Adam was formed first, not Eve. And Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was. That was clearly not in Ephesus. That was clearly not in that time zone. And that was clearly not in that culture. That was, I mean, he's pulling us back now another 3,000 plus years. That makes it a gnomic standard. It is an arguably a gnomic standard. Does that make sense? Now look at I'm not saying this because I'm a guy and I get my jollies from this. I don't like responsibility. You guys know that. I'm like, don't give me responsibility unless it's necessary. I have enough responsibility, and I take that to prayer. I don't want to jump into responsibility unless God gives it to me. The reason I say that is, no authority do I, I mean, I, I take no authority unless it comes with the responsibility, and I don't want the responsibility. The reason I say that is, hey, if God were to say everyone gets to do whatever they want in regards to positions, I'd submit to that. But when God says, man, you are supposed to be the patriarch to move this thing forward, following me to do so, I have to submit to that, and I don't openly, I mean, I don't naturally submit to that particular role either. Now, we have that far in it. This is why you'll never see a woman teaching at our church for over men. Because even if you weren't sure, I'd rather be safe than sorry, and I don't want to break, I don't want to break what the law says. I don't want to break what the word says. And by the way, this didn't make Eve stupider when it says Eve was Eve was informed first, but she was deceived. It makes Anna more guilty. He sinned in knowledge. She was clearly deceived. But in that, he's like, look at Paul's bringing them to say, this is a standard from the beginning. God made Adam first because he was supposed to lead. There was the idea. And she was deceived. You know why she was deceived? Because he wasn't leading. If he was leading, he could have interjected during the conversation. Genesis chapter 3, I challenge to look. Adam never speaks 
while the serpent is lying to his wife. And he is there the whole time, that's clear. Adam was, he was negligent in his role. If he had been leading at all, they wouldn't have been there to talk to him in the first place. But God made him to lead, and he didn't do it, and because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing, she fell into this deception. Let me say it again. Adam was called to lead, and because he wouldn't do what he was supposed to, or because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to, she fell into deception. And you're going to find that happen an awful lot. So when someone tells you, oh no, this was back then, or whatever, I'm like, well, you have a problem with that. He brings up the Garden of Eden, and that doesn't work. And there's no and, it's an or, and it's a neither, would they? And there's only one thing left. Then we get to verse 15. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing. Now, wait a minute. We have to, when we approach a difficult scripture, and obviously I won't be doing this with all the texts, but this is an important one. We have, to, we have to know what scripture says it couldn't mean. And what it couldn't mean is that she would be saved from her sin. That's clearly not the case, because he already tells us God desires all men to be saved, and we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ, not through our works. And that would be a work. And that would be unfair anyways, because what about the poor gal who really can't have children? So what does it mean then? Well, what's our context? A woman is gifted to teach, and she wants to teach. And she really feels that God's called her to teach. That's fantastic. God never says that's a bad thing. The word saved, sozo, means rescued, delivered, and made complete, or made whole. In our context, it makes perfect sense to me. It says... In this, um, so so it's so thesitai, the dia tes technognis. And the word, by the way, that's children or childbearing. She will be made complete or whole in childbearing. Now put this together. There's a gal and she really wants to teach and she's got a gift to teach. And you know what God says? Have children and teach them. You can find the satisfaction you're looking for, you can exercise the gift. You have in children. And they would love that. And God says, it isn't like you, you, I've given you a gift and you can't use it. Because the issue isn't you not exercising a gift. It's making sure that you're in the position I put you in and not bucking against the authority. And that's the whole point of chapter 2. So look, at, in, the, in a nutshell, here's the idea. Secular world, what do we do with kings and authority? We spit at them. <laughs> what is that? Supplications? Prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. You get that? Because in the simplest sense, I want you praying. I want you praying for that leadership. Then, what about men? I want you to be examples in prayer. I want people to know that men are willing to pray anywhere, not just over a table. Let's face it. You can get, you know, you sit with a bunch of Christian guys, and you're at a restaurant, and you're like, let's pray. And some are like, oh, I don't know, should we do that? God wants us praying everywhere. Here's a good place. And with that, then he goes, now, in regards to the roles of authority in the church, this is two things. It is a body, and it is a family. And in each case, there is a specific authority, and there are those, each person has their place. Each person is just as important. My children are no less important than me, even though I am responsible for them. They're just as important. In my heart, they're more important. It doesn't make them any less important that they don't have the authority I do. They'd love to have the authority I do, and sometimes they think they do. But they don't. But if a gal really, really wants to teach, let her reach out to children. 
Now, wait a minute. That's unfair. She only gets to teach kids. Yeah, that's unfair. I only get to teach people who are in London. No, actually, you know what? God knows how to put people that will be ministered to by you because it's his job to use you. So, does that make sense? So we're going to move forward because that's only a third of the book. But obviously, this is one of the areas we really need to make sure. So look at in our church, our you know, well, that's sexist. No, actually, it's scriptural. Well, then the scripture's sexist. Well, you can raise up your whole commission and challenge God, but in the end, you're gonna lose. You know? I don't like it. I don't like a lot of things that scriptures say naturally. And I warn you, you can see, by the way, from the fall of from the fall of man and woman, that each one of us has our problems. In a fallen state, there's an issue of control with the woman, and there's an issue of laziness with a man. And by the way, it's so much easier to recognize that in the other gender, isn't it? Oh, those lazy guys. Oh, those controlling women. But both, that's what we do naturally. So if God actually said, ladies, take the helm, and guys, just sit back and do nothing, we'd all go, that naturally sits well with me. <laughs> And the reason I say that is, when God puts man in a position of authority, that's contrary to our nature. When God tells a woman, actually, I want you to sit underneath that, that's contrary to theirs. It is just as hard on both sides. Just know that. If you're like, that's not fair. We could actually say, that's not fair. You get some, you know, we, you know, that's not fair. You don't have to make the decisions. You don't have to be responsible. That's not fair. And I just, I just want to create sympathy on both sides. You know, in this, of course, here's the funny part. Soon it's going to be like, well, what's a gender anyways? You know. Chapter 3. And we'll start moving forward. Uh, I just really, I obviously, I had to really kind of dive into that. Chapter 1, our view of commandments. Chapter 2, our view of authority. Chapter 3, our view of leadership. Or I might even say this way, the qualifications or qualities of a leader. Leadership. Because what we're going to find is, this stares in the face of what the church in mass tends to qualify a leader on. He goes, there's basically two positions he's going to put here. Episcopas, bishops, which bishop simply means, epi means upon, scopas, like to scope, means to see, in other words, it's an overseer. And then diakonos, deacon, which means errand runner. It basically goes down to this, the guys who run the errands and the guys who oversee. Because those are our two positions according to this chapter. Does that make sense? He doesn't. We'll talk about elders, by the way, because all of them should be elders. Then all that means, by the way, presbyteros means old. That's all it means. More nicer words, mature, mature in the faith. Now, who do you want to oversee the ministry? And who do you want to uh, to run your errands? Well, again, I'm just going to put what this says. Don't just believe me, but I'm going to lay it out. And here's the... Well, here, look at it with me. Do you guys need something? Sorry. Okay. This is a faithful saying. Do you remember? That's the second time he's using that now. If a man desires the position of a bishop, episcopos, overseer, he desires a good work. In other words, good thing. It is actually a good thing to desire to do this. But the bishop must be... So, you want to be a pastor? You want to be a leader? You want to be an overseer? God says, good job. But this is what's expected of you. This is what's required of you. First thing, he must be 
blameless. Another word there, by the way, for what it's with? Anapleptus. Anapleptus, by the way, means not arrested or unrebukable. Now, that doesn't mean you've never been arrested. What it means is that nobody could lay a genuine charge against you. That doesn't mean people won't try to come up with a charge. But the difference is, if they have to make it up, I guess you're doing all right. Second, the husband of one wife. Literally, a one-woman man. I like that. Temperate, which literally means a saved brain. Sober-minded. Notice that, by the way. God wants leaders, overseers, sober. We're going to even see that even more so here in a moment. Of good behavior. Hospitable, one of my favorite words. Philoxenos. Hospitable, by the way, does not mean, first and foremost, you open your house to every person. Philo means friend. Xenos means stranger. Hospitality in its simplest sense means you befriend strangers. Now, that should happen at church. Somebody comes in, they're a stranger. Who befriends them? He goes, a person who oversees should be an example of this. They should be somebody willing to befriend the stranger. Able to teach. Notice it doesn't say super awesome at it. Just able to. And then one of my favorites in this, and now you'll know why I do what I do with this. Not given to wine. The word, by the way, is the word paroinas. Try that word. Paroinas. Para. What does para mean? Along. That was excellent, right? Yes, it means alongside, like paragraph, para, or like peripheral, or, you know, paragraph, right? There's the idea, or perimeter. Along, it means beside. Oinos means wine. It literally says, not beside or not near the wine, is what it says. Now, you can take that whatever way you want. Now, he's not going to say that about the deacons. But what he says is an overseer should not be near the one, should not be beside the one. Now, you can take that whatever way you want. Well, you can't. Well, you can take it whatever and stand before God with it. But for me, what's the safest way for me to interpret that? I want overseers to be dry. Now, I can't make that call for a person who's a believer because it doesn't say that's the call for a believer here. It does say that we're not to be drunk. But for an overseer... He says one of the qualities expected is he should not be beside the wine. He should not be near the wine. So why do they translate it not given to wine? Well, that's up to you to decide. But it literally is not beside the wine or not near the wine. I'd love for you not to be that. But let me just say this. The same, though that's the case, is Timothy doing the role of an overseer? I think he's kind of doing the role more of a deacon, if you think about it. And the reason I say that is, this is the same book Paul did. How's that for timing? Um, okay. That's perfect timing. Uh, he's going to tell Timothy that he should have a little wine for his stomach's sake. But he shouldn't be near it if he's an overseer. Hmm. I think Timothy's running the role of a deacon here. He's running the errand for Paul on these people. Is he running the role of a pastor? Is a pastor an overseer? I would definitely think a pastor is overseeing. He's seeing over a lot of things. Now, I'm going to say this. Every worship leader is more than a deacon, in my opinion, because they have influence over people. In the simplest sense, deacons, um, in the most base sense, though Timothy's kind of crossing the border here on this, 
Deacons, in the simple sense, are more handling stuff, and overseers are handling people. And if you have that kind of, and I just in the simplest sense, and this is just me to be safe, if, if you are having a responsibility of being an influence over people, don't go near something that can enslave another person. How's that for a fair answer? Now, of good behavior, hospitable, remember that's a stranger lover, or a friend of strangers able to teach, not given a wine, not violent, literally not a striker, not greedy for money, but gentle. FBI case, it literally means to be upon what it seems. In other words, it's not somebody that's going to come in and, and just crush a, you know, someone's, you know, well, you get it, the idea, they're gentle. Not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? By the way, this is a huge issue when someone comes in and says, I really believe God's called me to lead here. And of course, the first place we start to look is his house. And if he and his wife are in really crazy places of, you know, they, they're butting with each other, that's a house already in discord. And if you see that kind of craziness, and we've had a couple of situations where we'd like that, we're like, in your current situation, you need to work that out first. Now, am I trying to be mean? Of course not. I'm just trying to do what the scripture says. Do you think that's a fun conversation for me to have? Not a novice. What's that? That means a newbie, right? Let's see, be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. What did the devil do? If you think about it, what the devil said is, hey, I'll do this now. I want the glory. This is about me. This shouldn't be about God. And that's what happens when a novice gets in that position. Moreover, he must have a good testimony with those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, I have a very important thing to say here, and I mean this with my open heart. If you, in any of this, believe my life does not add up, I need you to tell me later. I genuinely need you to tell me later. Because this is what's expected of me, and I know that I'm playing the role of an overseer here. And I cannot accept this, accept the role, if this is where my life isn't. Does that make sense? And I'm holding you accountable to that now. Because it's that important to me. Now, in that light, I do want to make this really clear. How many of these things speaks about ability? Yeah, able to teach. How many of these things speak about character? Ruling your family household, maybe both. Yeah, I would agree with you. The reason I say that is, how can we, in good conscience, take a CV from a person to hire a guy for ministry? Now, I'm not trying to condemn somebody else who does it. But if I, as a pastor, am looking and saying, this is what an overseer needs, how do I see this on a CV? I might be able to see, this is the books he's written, this is how he's able to teach. Okay, he's met one of the, whatever, 20-something qualities. Congratulations. Maybe we have a chance to look and see his house, and for the moment, they've paraded themselves in a way that looks like it's orderly. Now, they don't have to be perfect, they're kids. But is there an understandable authority in the household? If not, there's a concern there. Now, let's talk about deacons. Verse 8. Deacons must be, notice the first word, reverent. 
Semnas, it means respectable or worshipful, by the way. Not double-tongued. Dialogos, which means, in essence, two, talk, two, way, two different ways to talk. And you get that. You know guys that talk one way at church and talk a different way elsewhere. Not given, notice, too much wine. Interesting. Listen to these three words. Prosecco polos oinas. Last word, oinas, means wine. Polos means lots. So there's much wine. But the first word is the word that I find interesting. The word is prosecco. How many of you Pro or pros means towards. Echo means to hold. So holding towards much wine. A deacon should not be known for someone. He cannot be somebody who holds a lot of wine by himself. Pulls a lot of wine to him. Can he have a drink? It doesn't say he can't. That's up for a person to decide. Although, you know, I always say I challenge people. We move from the place where everything may be permissible, but what blesses or what edifies. In the end of it all, though, if you're going to be an overseer, it just seems slam dunk to me you shouldn't be near it. But here, you shouldn't be pulling an awful lot of it to you. How's that for fairness? Um, now, uh, not greedy for money, we would think that'd be an obvious. Holding the mystery of faith as a pure conscience. But let them first be tested. Dokematsu. Now, by the way, notice it does not say test them. It says let them be tested, which tells us they're not the ones testing them. They will be tested. You should just allow it to happen. You allow them to, and it says, and then let them serve as deacons if they found blameless. Same word, if you will, in regards to the pastors or the overseers. Likewise, their wives should be reverent. Notice the deacons and their wives, the first word is the same. Did you notice that? And that is simnas, reverent. In essence, worshipful. Um, yeah, reverent, respectful. Not slanderous, by the way. Diablos, it's the word that means devil. By the way, you should never have a guy become a deacon if his wife is a devil. General rule, it doesn't work well for the church. We've seen a couple of those. Uh, Diablos. In essence, and by the way, it's interesting that devil means, what's a slanderer? It talks kind of about, or kind of tells lies about people, or gives bad information. Yeah, a slanderer is somebody who speaks evil of other people. Now listen, a guy that's even running errands, you need to know, even a guy who's running errands in your church, their wife is involved too. Even if their wife isn't in a position of, of ministry, they're still going to be in a position of authority. I'm sorry, a position of influence. If they're in a position of influence, you recognize you don't just, in essence, recruit or install the guy. You insert the family. And if that be the case, you want to make sure that even if the guy is this amazing servant of the Lord, but if his wife is quick to slander people, that hurts the church like very few things can. And we know the power of slander. By the way, again, who's the slander according to this? You, when you're slandering, that you, you are basically playing the role of Satan. Just saying what it says. Um, temperate, which again, by the way, means sober or circumspect. Faithful in all things. Trustworthy. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, so they both should be one woman men. Uh, ruling their children with their own house as well. For those who serve well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing with great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write to you so you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, 
justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Now, I'm going to have to start summing up a bit of this because we've gotten obviously halfway through it and we're already at 40 minutes. Well, actually, we're at 35 minutes. Um, but I need to recognize, again, chapter 1 is about commandments. It's to lead us to Christ. It's not the right. It's not the rock to righteousness. Chapter 2 is about authority. We pray for those in secular authority, or in that matter, in authority regardless, and we, tr- we allow God to select the authority that he wants even in the church. Chapter 3, the L is leadership. Fundamental. And with that leadership, there's it's about character. Character, character, character. Same thing with the deacons. And by the way, that requires us to be around each other. Chapter 4. And I'll read this fairly quickly and I'll see. But the Spirit expressly says in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceived spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And here's the two things you'll notice. They forbid people to marry and they command from abstaining from foods. And I think somebody telling me to abstain from food, that can't be holy one. Um, and he says, look at this is something you'll see with these guys. They they have no conscience at this point. It's been it's been scarred. And once their conscience gets scarred, they can make commandments out of things that God did not command, including you can't get married and you can't eat meat is what that's actually the primary issue here. And God created to be received with thanksgiving to those who believe and know the truth. Every creature of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. Now, maybe there's some things someone could put before you when you couldn't receive it with thanksgiving. Well, that's up to you. But it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished. And don't you love that's the word he uses? After they said you can't eat it, he says, why don't you be nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you've carefully followed? But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness because bodily exercise profits a little. I think that's what Suzanne was trying to tell Ruth today. But godliness is profitable in all things. Now, do you get the idea that they're actually bringing exercise into their doctrine? He goes, hey, look it. You really want to exercise? There's nothing wrong with that. Bodily exercise, it's going to benefit you a little. Temporarily, but it's going to benefit you a little. Because no matter what you do, I mean, you can't keep yourself alive forever. You could run and you could jog all you want. You can jog to get your vitamins. And on the way back, you're jogging with your vitamins. You can get run over. In the end of it all, you die healthy, but you die still. He goes, but if you exercise yourself towards godliness, that's going to benefit you all the time. So he goes, let me just, let's put perspective on that. Because this is how we deal with some of the lies. These old wives' tales, we reject them. These things that people are playing in regards to telling you you can't do these things, reject that. Exercise? Well, it isn't like you just throw the baby out with the bathroom. Exercise is okay. It's just not the best. Exercising godliness is the best. And he says, um, having a promise of not only that, the life that now is, but also that which is to come. And our third, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Listen, because we trust in the living God, bringing in and again, who is the Savior of all men, especially to those who believe. How do you read 1 Timothy and not believe that God wants everyone saved? How do you read 1 Timothy and actually think Jesus only saved or died to save some? Well, these things command and teach. And can I say, you guys, here it is in a nutshell. Let no one despise your youth. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. 
But instead, be an example. Let me tell you what you should be an example in. What you say, that's your word. In conduct, how you act. In love, your selflessness. In spirit, that you put your heart into what you do. In faith, that you trust God and are trustworthy. And in purity. He goes, let that be what it looks like to follow Christ. I love that. He's like, well, I feel like I'm young. Well, here's your verse then. Be an example. The word example, tipos, like we got the word type from it. In other words, let people, when they think of you, go, this is what I think of them. Listen to what they say. Listen to, watch the way they behave. See their selflessness. See how they pour their heart into these things. Watch them trust God and become trustworthy. And watch them seek to be pure. Because, man, if you do that, how can anyone look down on who you are? He'll say later, let your progress be evident to everyone. So in other words, you're still growing, but no matter how much you grow, you can choose this. You might, well, I don't think I know the word that great yet. Well, you're learning that, but you can still do this. Well, I'm not really sure I have, you know, I've got all this, uh, my understanding of prayer or, you know, the end times or all these things. Maybe, but you can still be this. So let that be the emblem. And then here's, remember how there were two things, spit and red? Verse 13, till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. And again, this is what it would be like. We read the word, and then we go, what needs to change in my life? That's exhortation. And then we get teaching. And you go, that's what we're doing now on Tuesday nights. Where, you know, after we have our time of praise, they read together, and then they're like, what do we need to put, what needs to change in our own lives as we pray this? I love that. And then we teach. Now, Timothy, don't neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy and the laying out of hands by the eldership, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. To heed yourself into the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Okay, I'm going to roll quick here, but we're getting it, right? So, how do we deal with lies? We refuse those things, and we become an example of the opposite. Does that make sense? It isn't just that you stand against them, but you become an example of the proper. Because if you just go, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, it really confuses people. Have you ever been in a situation where that's the kind of person you're with, you, especially if you work for them and you're trying to please them in some way, and then all they can point out is what you do wrong? You're like, I don't even know what's right. I just know what's wrong. And he goes, well, then be an example of the right. Then you can stand against these things. And it was like, well, it's only proper for him to stand against a dirty joke. This guy's a pure guy. I love that. You know, He's not going to talk about that. You should hear what he really just he likes to talk about. Chapter 5. So we have commandments. Chapter 1, chapter 2, authority. Chapter 3, leadership. How do we do that? We pray for and we respect God's positions. Um, e, uh, say C-A-L-L, right? E, that's chapter 5. What is E for? Eldership. Don't rebuke an older man. Exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger as sisters without purity. Honor widows who are really widows. In the Ephesian church, if a woman had no children and had no husband, she could be brought in and sponsored by the church. In other words, they ran an old folks' home for women. Because after all, what could a woman do? An older man could still work, but an older woman couldn't. An older man could teach, but an, old, but young, but an older woman couldn't. So they actually were doing that. And by the way, if God grant us the position, I'd love to do that. But he has a very strong requirement for the kind of gal you do this to. You don't just say, oh, you're old, let's put you in here. 
Because what's happening is they were doing that, and this was becoming a gossip house and a place of sin. And he's like, oh, imagine that. The church is sponsoring basically a bunch of gals to do really wacky things. In essence, it started to look like a brothel. So listen, other widows who are really widows, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety in the, piety in the home and repay their parents. This is good and acceptable before God. He's like, look at it. If somebody else can sponsor this gal, they should do it. The church that has limited resources, and they want to make sure they go to the right place. Now, she was really a widow, left alone, trusts in God, and continues in supplications and prayers, the sp of spit, night and day. She lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that, she, that they may be blameless. You want to help the gals to be blameless. You know what you're doing when you're actually giving them a place to live and sponsoring? You are, in essence, sponsoring a group of women to be your prayer army. If you think about it. These are gals who are known for their supplication and prayers. It's like, if this is what you're going to do all day, how do I give you the freedom to do that? Man, wouldn't that be great to have? If in, and it doesn't have to just be a bunch of old gals. but anyway. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Obviously, the context is about taking care of an older person. Let's face it, in an economically based culture like this one, old people are expendable. That was what Hitler taught. But in a culture where family is important, an older person is revered because they should have wisdom. Are we going to go with the world? Or are we going to go with a family? Don't let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, not unless she's been the wife of one man, reported for good works, well reported for good works. She's brought up children, lodged strangers. She's washed the saints' feet. If she's relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, now, that's going to already cut out a whole lot of troublemakers. But refuse the younger widows. When they've begun to grow wanton against Christ, all they desire to marry. It wouldn't be a, there's no sin in marrying unless you've actually said you'll never do it again and Jesus is going to be the, your husband instead. Heavy condemnation because they cast off their first faith. Besides that, they learn to be idle. Wandering from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips, busybodies, saying things that they are not. So, hey, look at they're busy. They're busy spreading rumors. Therefore, I desire that the younger women... We've known people who are older who are quick to do that. Therefore, I desire that the younger women want to marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adverse adversary to speak reproachfully. Some have already turned aside after Satan. If a believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. Don't let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Elders? Well, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Remember, elder presbyteros just means mature people, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Oh, let me read that one more time. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Deuteronomy 25.4. And listen, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You know what's interesting? Do you know where you find that? Luke 10.7. Why is that important? Because it says in verse 18, the scripture says. Do you realize that Paul is quoting Luke as scripture in the beginning of the 60s AD? How fun is that? Now, listen to this verse. Could you imagine if this verse was actually done? Do not receive the accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. 
oh, I heard that guy on television, oh, I heard that person, oh, did you hear about pastor so-and-so? That's gossip. That's the stuff you don't want in your house. And unless it's two or more people who actually saw it happen, don't even, don't even listen to it. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice. Don't just do this for some, do it for all, doing nothing with partiality. Don't lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And then this verse, no longer drink, only water, but use, notice it doesn't say drink, use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your free infirmities. Why is Paul encouraging wine for Timothy? For what purpose? Yeah, medicinal purpose. He doesn't say, it's pretty stressful, give yourself a couple good drinks to take care of <laughs> It's amazing, though, how many people that in the ministry that I've talked to, there, it's like, you know, but when it's a stressful day in ministry, a couple good Guinness make the difference. And, of course, you know, I'm going to really sound horrible to them because I'm like, a good night of prayer really does it for me. Oh, aren't we spiritual? I hope so. <laughs> well, have a little, you know, have a little drink. Paul told Timothy, he's like, the guy was dying of diarrhea. And because he had more than likely, and as a result of that, it was the one thing that had an antibacterial, if you will, it, had, it was the one thing that killed that inside a person. Like the guy, obviously, what was, what was Timothy's problem physically? His stomach. <laughs> so somehow, notice by the way, he doesn't say smack down the wine. He says have a little wine. All you're going to need is a little and have it. Because clearly something's wrong with your stomach. And, and by the way, that tells me Timothy didn't want any. Timothy's like, I'm not going near that. Paul's like, look it. I'm not telling you you should get drunk. I'm not telling you you should even smack down a few. I'm telling you, have a little bit so that your stomach can be healed and let's move forward. For what it's worth. And notice what he says right after that. Just in case you want to jump on that verse. Some men's sins are clearly evident. Preceding them to judgment, some follow later. Because likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. You know what? I'm going to read through chapter 6, and let's close this thing down. Ready? Now, you guys are all, you guys all still look in it. I'm actually impressed. Caller, chapter 1. Chapter 2, how I view the authority. Chapter 3, how I view leadership. leadership. Chapter 4, how I view lies. And by the way, how do I handle lies? I reject them, and, and I'm an example of the opposite. Chapter 5, how I view eldership. Chapter 6, how I view riches. Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor. If you're working, that's your boss. So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, oh, let them not despise them. Why would you, why would you despise a believing master? What if you think your example of Jesus is better than theirs? What if your example of Jesus is better than theirs? I mean, I'm trying to think in my own mind, what would cause me to despise a believing master? I'm like, how does that guy call himself Christian? Well, that's, yeah. Well, anyways, don't despise them because they're brethren. Rather, serve them because they're, who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. By the way, I just did that. 
If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing. He's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. That's in essence, that's like wrestling for, for nothing. Of men of corrupt minds, of destitute faith, by the way, the idea of that could be guys that love to debate intellectually or have cutlow wars or try to, you know, they like to wrestle that way. He goes, but in the end of it all, it's purposeless. And they suppose that godliness is means of gain. In other words, godliness is a means to an end of getting stuff. You know what you're supposed to do with those people? From such, withdraw yourselves. Stop hanging out with them. Godliness with contentment, there's where real great gain is. Is great gain. You know why? Because we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we'll carry nothing out. You know? Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And by the way, I know most of you have food because we fed you, and most of you have clothing because we've given you something. Um... Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. In other words, they fall into this place that lures them in, and then they get stuck there. Into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men. There's going to be two metaphors he uses. The first is they drown. You get caught into this thing. By the way, what is the thing that's luring them in and drowning them? The desire to be rich. And by the way, rich in earthly things. And he says, there is a riches that actually is okay, and that's godliness. This, though, you're going to find that men drown in this. It says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And here's the verse that gets t- totally you know, ripped to shreds. For the love of money is a root, no, not, not the root, it's a root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, because money isn't the root of all evil. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, sure, for which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Here's our second metaphor. Do you remember what the first one was? That they drowned. You know what the second one is? That they get impaled. There was a gal, I think it was in UCLA, drinking from a uh, third story, something like this, and there was wrought iron out there. You know, those kind of, like, kind of like across this, the way there. And she was drinking and she fell over backwards and her buttocks got caught in one of the poles and it pierced it and impaled her and she was hanging upside down, drunk, Hanging upside down, hanging by a pole through the butt cheek. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Would you volunteer for that role? No. No. And of course, the funny part, I hate to say it that way, is it took them quite a while for them to show up, and there's that poor girl dangling there. No one wants to get pierced through like that. We're not talking about body piercing. We're talking about getting impaled. And what he tells us here is that people that have in their greed strayed from the faith, and every time they stray from the faith, it's like they get impaled by this with many sorrows. You've got this giant stick sticking out of you called sorrow. But you, O man of God, flee, run in terror from these things, and instead pursue righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Now, last part. Fight the good fight of faith. By the way, Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy 6, 7, or 2 Timothy actually 7, that he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he's kept the faith. Paul knows this thing. At the end of 2 Timothy, we're going to see the same thing here. Paul speaking of himself here. He's like, listen you guys, and can I say to you, I mean this with my heart, let's fight. We don't, it's like, we're not out there just trying to, we're not fighting people. We're fighting the good fight of faith. It's like, it's still a fight, but it's the best fight. Lay hold on eternal life. To which you were also called and have confessed the confession and the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all men, or I'm sorry, to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, <coughs> dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us, listen, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. Church, fellowship, he gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them be do good. Let them be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, that they be rich in good works. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Avoid the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Interesting, by the way, the old King James had used the word science there for what it's worth. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And grace be with you on that. Now, chapter 1. Let's conclude this. Chapter 1, how we view commandments. And what is it? They are a tool, but it's faith through Jesus Christ that leads us to righteousness. How do we use it now? That it shows us how to have a, a sincere, how to love one another, and how to have a sincere, proper, clear conscience. Chapter 2, how we view authority. We pray for those that are in authority, and we respect God's choosing for them. Chapter 3, how we view leadership. And as we view leadership, we look for character. That's what we look for. Chapter 4, how we handle lies. We reject them, and we are an example of the opposite. Chapter 5, how we view eldership. We respect eldership, but we also make sure that we care for the widow who really is genuinely in need. Chapter 6, how we view riches. And we view eternal riches over earthly riches. That's the simplest of it. Are there any questions before we go to prayer? You just went through 1 Timothy, but let's face it, didn't we just Brazilian barbecue 1 Timothy? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your calling on our lives. I want to thank you for this beautiful letter, and I want to pray, can I just humbly pray specifically right now for Daniel and Hugo? Lord, I thank you for their love for you. 
I thank you, Lord, for how you've called them to be faithful in the ministry. I thank you, Lord, for how they have really been faithful and just beautiful servants of you. And I pray, Lord, that they would continue to be that example, Lord, in the way that in what they say and what they do in their selflessness, Lord, how they put their heart into things. Lord, let them be examples of these things, Lord, of their trustworthiness and of their purity. And I thank you, Lord, that I have two guys that I really love and trust that are right before me even right now. I also, Lord, want to thank you for the fact, Lord, that this was not born in easiness. We could have, Lord, just set this thing up and it could have exploded from the beginning and it could have been born in such easy nature that at the first hint of challenge, people would bail. And we saw that for some. But, Lord, you have raised up men who know that this is a fight. But it's not just a fight. It is the, not a, but the good fight of faith. And Lord, though it's a fight, it's the best fight. And we have victory, and it is the best reward. So Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, that as we read your word, Lord, that we would continue to lay at the cross and recognize, Lord, that you continue to make us right with you through that and that alone. And Lord, I want to thank you for the fact that you've challenged us in regards to our view of authority. And we recognize, Lord, that unless we draw from your word, we will actually follow the world's view. And the church has been so rampantly guilty in that area and make us different Lord let us actually trust when you say that all authority is actually ordained by you that you put them there Lord that let us actually trust you know what you're doing by putting people in there Lord and that was written at a time like Nero so clearly Lord keep us from being whiners but rather make us prayers Lord and to take the position you've given us Lord trusting you know what you're doing even if we feel ill-equipped or we feel overwhelmed or whatever, Lord, we want to trust that you know where to put us, when and how. We're going to trust you in that. We will submit, Lord, to whatever it is, even if it's contrary to our nature. And Lord, we want to thank you for the way, Lord, that you've given us and you've spoken to us, Lord. And we want to, and we want to Lord, be people who are of such character that when we read 1 Timothy 3 that it would just be synonymous with, our, with who we are and Lord if there are things that challenge us give us the will to bend Lord may we be clear to stand against the lies and, but be, to be more than just that but to be the example of the truth may we have respect for those who are mature in you please Lord and to have compassion for those who are in need in their elder years and may we be people who hunger for proper riches, eternal riches, not just the things of this earth. Because that clearly drowns men in their greediness and pierces them through with great sorrows. And we don't want that. So Lord, I pray for each of us that our progress would be evident to all as we continue to progress in you. Jesus, in your name. Amen.